Hello and welcome to the Military Archives podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Owen Kinsella about the upcoming Defence Forces Centenary History Book. Owen is the author and researcher of the upcoming Defence Forces Centenary History Book, which is in progress. You might also recognise his dulcet tones from last week. He did the uh, the voiceover for the for the Lookout Post logbook. So if he sounds familiar, that's why you're very welcome. Brief. It was a brief appearance. <laughs> Multi-talented. Now you're very welcome. Um, Owen, this is an interesting book, um, been written by an interesting author. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, um, so I'm a professional historian. Uh, I would have done my BA and PhD in UCD and for the last few years, maybe nearly a decade or so, I've been kind of working as a consultant historian. So working with different organizations, public bodies, private bodies to help them bring their histories to a sort of a wider public audience. Um, oftentimes they're celebrating an anniversary or a momentous occasion, centenaries, as with the Defence Forces history. And what they're interested in doing is just taking their histories and making them sort of better known but also sort of understanding where they've come from as well um so it's 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 a fascinating job because i get to work with a lot of different institutions and i get to work on a lot of different projects and it means that i kind of it's very refreshing because i get to change focus on a very regular basis so with the defense forces now at the moment um the last major project i suppose i worked on was the history of DCU and that's it's a completely different field but it's you know it, it, it means that everything is very very fresh for me when I start a project like this and it means I can come at it with you know the kind of uh, the enthusiasm enthusiasm of starting over um, something completely different. And actually when we were um, when we were in the business of looking for an author one of the things specifically we, we decided we wanted was somebody who could write an institutional history of the organization rather than just a military or a tactical or strategic history which very much fits into your uh, experience. How are you going to tackle that with this book? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And and with institutions, I mean, institutional histories are, by their very nature, they're, they're quite different to, I suppose, biographies, things like that. You're coming at um, a history from a very centralised point. And one of the points I always sort of make when I begin a project like this and when I'm talking to say, people like yourself who are interested in putting together this kind of project is you're never going to be able to capture the institution's entirety. So like you said, this can't be a history of units. It won't be a unit history. It won't be a history of deployment um, overseas and peacekeeping. All of these elements will be incorporated and involved. But because you're looking at an institution that has had tens of thousands of people involved in it over the last century, you're looking at an institution that's been around for a century, if not a little bit longer. We can talk about that um, mm-hmm. as well later on. So you have to come at it from a centralized starting point and then work from there. So for me, you know, organizationally, it's pretty straightforward. Come at it from a chronological perspective. And you want to tell the history then from that kind of center point, um, from the kind of the major decisions, the major events, the major personnel that would have affected um, and impacted on the Defence Force's development over the last century and use that then, use that kind of centralised starting point to maybe descend into some of the more interesting subplots, if you like, or sub-themes that would thread their way through the history of the Defence Forces, obviously in this particular case, but the same with any institution. You're kind of looking to try and make sure that you get the broad overview and you communicate that as as well as possible, but also this with an institution like this in particular, you've got so many interesting different 
aspects to it that I would like to draw out as best I can while I'm doing the project and, and writing the book and bringing it all together then with illustrations as well that will, I suppose, allow me to kind of show a different aspect that mightn't necessarily be in the text, but they'll be there in the illustrations or in the photographs, the documents, you know, things like that that we'll use to kind of add that little bit of color to the book as well. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting point, the fact that the the images, just for people listening, the the book is only, it will be 40 to 45,000 words. I think I'm correct, Aaron. That's right. So, so far, anyway. <laughs> it could be longer, but I think that's what we're going to have to cut it at about 45,000, yeah. But it's, it's, I suppose, a manageable amount. The idea is that it'll be academically rigorous, but accessible as well. And the thing about the images is 150 to 200 photographs and documents. I mean, they're not going to be separate to the narrative. They're going to be interwoven with the narrative. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's yeah. something that, that you bring to this which, which will make this something special. I mean, just think from a project management point of view, when we sat down, when myself and the editorial board sat down about this book and we put out the, the call for, for int- uh, expressions of interest, when we shortlisted it down, it was shortlisted to four authors. I'm not going to name everybody now, but um, when we saw that, we said, right, whoever gets this, we're going to get something really special out of this. But what really, I think, piqued it was your specific experience and your, your detail in doing this. Um, so can you tell us what, what kind of image, have you looked at images yet and documents and how are you going to interweave this with the, the narrative? Yeah, so for the most part, I've been looking through the archival records of so mostly written material here in military archives. Obviously with the pandemic, I haven't been able to get into uh, the National Archives. I was in UCD archives last week um, for the first time to look at some of the papers that they have. So for the most part, I've been going through that documentary record. But as I go along, what I do is I mark up or take a note of anything document that to me would make a striking visual or would complement the text in a nice way so it, it might be a memoranda um, which which has sort of specific resonance to a particular moment in time it might be something a nice headed paper that just will bring the reader draw the reader into what it was like in say the 1920s the 30s the 50s whenever and you see that kind of um visually you know expressive and stunning um some of the documents that you see are, are, are quite staid and they're not exactly things you want to see in, in an illustration, but some of them are fantastic. So from that perspective, I haven't really delved into the images as much as I will do. <laughs> when you when you think about the amount of images that are held here alone, never mind any other repository, but certainly here in military archives, I haven't counted them. I don't know if you have a, a count of them, but there, I mean, there's tens of thousands of them. And when you have that many images the real challenge is in terms of trying to figure out which ones you're going to use. And, you know, 150 images is a lot for a book like this. It's, and it's, it's an ideal number because it gives you that chance to not just work with text, but also to bring in, like I said, that visual element that will draw the reader into, into the text as well as supplement what I'm writing. Um, so trying to narrow that down is going to be hugely challenging. And that's where, uh, you know, the, I suppose the skills and the knowledge that's already here within military archives is going to be hugely helpful for me because there's a store of knowledge here with, with you and with all the archivists and everybody else who works within archives that will be able to tell me, well, this actually, these are really, 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 really great images in this collection or this collection. And you should really have a look at this. And it makes my job a good deal easier. And when I've, I've done a few of these institutional histories before and most of this is actually the first time that I've worked with an archive that is formally established and that has this already this incredible team working here who know the collections inside and out what I've done in the past is gone in and I've looked through I mean I remember with DCU 
um, they had an, an unsorted and unarchived collection of you know tens of thousands of photographs stored in filing cabinets, and I had to try and organise a team of people who were who would come up, come on board with me and spend a week just going through things, pick out what they thought would be really interesting illustrations or really interesting images, and include them. And I put out a call as well to people who used to work in in DCU and say, "Will you you know if you got any images, can you can you send them my way? I want to have a look at them." So. From a project management point of view, it, it changes every time. And when I get to look at the images, and I think that'll come a little bit later on, maybe in the maybe Q3, Q4 of this year, just as we head in towards you know, the time of the project we'll be finishing up, that's when I'll really have to sit down and actually think, well, how are we going to tackle this aspect of it? Because it is a really, really important aspect of it. You know, when you, 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 you worked on a book last year, I think maybe the year before, on the emergency. So that was an illustrated photo history of the emergency. You had, you know, you've hundreds of images in that. And that's just for one five-year, six-year period in the Defence Forces history. So when you're trying to cover a century's worth, you know, the challenge is, is that yeah. sort of bit greater, and that's where I'll, I'll be relying on people like you who have this knowledge already of the emergency and say, well, that's that's a great image. And the kind of image as well and the kind of photograph that we want to include will be really important. So it can't really be a static image. You're looking for something that has a bit of action to it or something that has an immediacy to it that will draw, again, just that whole concept of drawing people into the book and drawing them into the text and sort of, you know, engaging with it in, in a way that they won't with just with the written words. Exactly, That's what we're yeah. kind of trying to do with it, you know. Um, and it, it's actually, it might be, it might be a good point as well. You mentioned at the start of the, of the, the, of this part of it about the editorial board. It might actually be a good idea just to say that how these kind of projects work and, and how I work within, within that kind of, um, I suppose, that, that setup in that there is, you know, the Defence Forces has set up a, an editorial board that oversees the project, but and this is a commissioned history, but it's it's not an official history. There's no, there's no. The defence forces aren't telling me what what to write. There's no, there's no sort of oversight in terms of how I approach the project or how I go about writing it or what will be in it in the end. The, the editorial board is doing a fantastic job of giving me guidance over what collections are here and what um, elements will be interesting to look at. You know, there's there's expertise there from the reserve. There's expertise there from different branches as well. So. For me, that makes it much easier than for me to be able to bounce ideas off the editorial board and say, well, I'm going to go down this road here, I'm going to go down this road. And then they'll say to me, well, if you're going to do that, yeah, maybe this would be an interesting aspect to, it to look at. And then I can make a decision and, yeah. and base it on that, you know. So that, that makes it, it, it makes the job easier when you have a, a set timeline to be able to mm -hmm. bounce ideas off that sort of, I suppose, group of experts. And every project like this that I would have worked on has that setup of, you know, authorial academic independence, but a, a body that would be there, like I said, to bounce ideas off and to help with the practical matters like finding publishers, things like that. And that's actually been very interesting from my perspective as well, because I mean, I'm a qualified archivist, but my job is really managerial and, and, and leading and, and running things here. So I don't really get to engage, to get, get down into the weeds much. But what interested me about this was to see it all come together, especially the fact that this was a, 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 a public institution that was commissioning this and running it. So what I found it really did was in terms of identifying how we were going to recruit a publisher and how we were going to put that call out to the public so we got the maximum feedback and the maximum, I suppose, the, the, the reach for what we were looking for and everybody who was eligible had a chance to put in. It really focused what we wanted as well. And that's how we really focused on the fact that we wanted an institutional history and the way we wanted this done. Um, the editorial board as well, because this isn't just a military archives project. Like mm. Most of the projects I'm working on are our military archives projects and I'm overseeing them with the various stakeholders. But this is a broader one. This was very much, this was the chief of staff's 
I think the, the chief of staff initiated this idea and I think it was inspired by um, A Voice Among the Nations, the That's centenary right, yeah. uh, of foreign affairs, that book. Um, so again, this isn't going to be a carbon copy, but that's kind of the inspiration for it. And uh, so this is, like I said, it's not an archives project. This is an overall, an overarching Defence Forces project. And it's a great board for me to work with as well. So I have the officer in charge of public relations branch. I have a former, another former officer in charge of the military archives, Steve McCone involved. Our um, head of our finance branch is involved as well, because again, that accountability is very important. Um, Dr. Michael Kennedy from the Royal Irish Academy and Larry Joy, who is the heritage officer for Dublin Port Authority and also a, a commandant in the Army Reserve. So it's really great to kind of see, get everybody's input and see a project like this come together. Yeah, yeah, um, no, ab- absolutely. Like I said, it, it's vital for a project like this where you have a relatively short time frame. I mean, ordinarily, like an academic book or a history of the Defence Forces, if you're looking at it for over 100 years, you know, you might want... A, a relatively long, like a long lead in time, a number of years to put together your research, put together all of the different elements of it, and then publish the book. When you're working with a time frame here of about sort of 16, 17 months to get the thing sent off to the publisher, and then, you know, working with the publisher to get it out at the end of 2022, I need to have that sort of level of support there so that, you know, some of the load of what ordinarily might fall on historians' shoulders of like finding a publisher, working with the publisher, um, working with the institution to, to get access to records, things like that. A lot of the the difficulty of that process is smooth and made much easier by the fact that I have an editorial board to work with. And, you know, it just, like I said, it makes it makes the project that much more viable. And speaking of, of publishing, just for the, for the audience, the idea is that the book will be, it will be in the market for... Q4 of 2022, and it's going to be published by Four Courts Press. There was, in fact, great interest in the book as well. It was really reassuring as well when we put the um, the call for expressions of uh, expressions of interest out to the yeah. wider publishing world. We got some really, we got some top notch replies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. going to be really well. Really I, nice you know, it, it, I think that speaks to the fact yeah. that this is it, it's a very interesting topic, uh, and I think that people will have. A lot of interest and not just those who have worked with the defense forces or for the defense forces not just those who have an interest in military history because you know the defense forces have been intertwined with the history of the state since its formation since its foundation so and obviously before that as well so it's 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 a project and i think it's a topic that will have that wide appeal and you know when we when we do get it out there i do i do think that it will have that kind of um you know impact and that kind of public interest that that we're hoping it will have so let's actually speak about the fact that this is a centenary history. I'm sure people are going to be, well, here it's coming out in 22. We have different people with different opinions, ears kind of prick up. So, I mean, from what I've seen, the Defence Forces often looks at, at having almost three different centenaries. So you have the formation of the Irish Volunteers in 13, then the formation of the National Army in 22, which is the, the point we're taking as yeah. the beginning of this centenary history of, of the military. And then you have, of course, the establishment of the defence forces under the terms of the Temporary Provisions Act 1923. It's 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 an interesting one. How how are you going to deal with that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, any complaints about the, the start date mm. or, or the, the starting point of 1922, I think send them to Commandant Dan Iotis in military archives. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's um it's yeah, like you said, it, it's an interesting um it's an interesting question, and and we do have, you know, in in society in general, we do have a love of round numbers for, you know, marking big dates, whether it's a silver anniversary, a golden jubilee, or a centenary. We, we like to use them as a point at which we, we look back. And 
for, you know, 1922, to me, it, it doesn't really make a huge difference because you can never write a history that just springs out of nowhere. So, it, you know, we're not just going to start in 1922. Of course, we're going to look back uh, to the foundation of the Irish Volunteers and and give that kind of background and that kind of context to the reader. So bringing 1922 in as a start point is as valid as any, I suppose, because that's when the National Army begins and that's the year that the, the Irish Free State is, is brought into being. So that makes a perfect amount of sense. So would 1923, you know, um, because, and, you know, maybe 1924 as well with, with the pensions, you know, uh, things like that. They're all valid arguments. Um, I mean, when I worked on... Leprosan Park Hospital. I did the centenary history of Leprosan Park Hospital, which was uh, published back in 2017 to mark their centenary. But that was the year that Leprosan Park was a private home, and it was it was gifted to the British Ministry of Pensions to be used as for treatment of shell shock of shell shock soldiers returning to Ireland from the First World War. So that was done in October 1917. But the first patients didn't arrive until March 1918. So which do you choose as the centenary date that you want to actually mark and? So they, they went with 1917. DCU, again, interesting, they were set up, there was a, um, a governing body set up in 1975, but they didn't admit their first students until 1980. So, uh, you know, which one do you want to pick as, I suppose, the exact starting date for the, the, the birth of that institution? Um, they're all arguments, I mean, that, that have their pros and cons, and I think at some stage you just kind of have to pick one and go with it. But like I said, give that context and give that... Um, that background to any institution because like I said none of these things start out of out of nowhere you know and none of them come none of them spring fresh to life so you have to give that kind of context to it so for me I I think that what we've seen over the last few years in terms of centenary histories and the fact that we're in the middle of this so-called decade of centenaries it's been fantastic in terms of bringing public interest to you know Irish history and and and, and to the study of history so from that perspective what 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 the defense forces are doing it makes perfect sense because you want to mark that i suppose that participation within this sort of i suppose a defining moment within irish history and what part of my job is to make sure that we don't just look at irish history as beginning in 1922 that there is a a much broader and a much longer history before that and with this project i might Absolutely, only go back yeah. you know i might only go back as far as 1913 with that but of course 1913 itself i mean that date doesn't just happen out of nowhere so part of the joy and i suppose part of the danger of of, of doing history is that you can always keep going back and back and back to find roots and of different movements and at different institutions you just have to pick a date at some stage if you're going to write a history and that's what that's what historians do all the time, you know, we, we always pick a date uh, at which we say, well, this is the date I'm going to look at and I'm mm. going to stop at this date. And they're always arbitrary because, you That's know. an interesting point because it reminds me of something the archivist who was a Vern Harris, I think it was Vern Harris said about the, uh, the implications of periodization. So when you, yeah. as soon as you sit down and say, this is, I mean, the, the war of independence period, this is the decade of centenaries, this is the rising period, this is the war of independence period, this is the civil war period, you're already putting other layers of assumption and meaning yeah. onto that. Yeah. That's Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, it's completely arbitrary in some respects. I mean, there are obviously certain events in certain periods where it makes sense to stop. And But, you know, people, society, institutions, they all change and evolve at different rates. It's not, a, you know, historical change is not a linear process. So one of the, actually, just I suppose as a, as a concrete example, what I thought was fascinating was you showed me a letter from, I think it's 1922, and from an intelligence officer in the army 
talking about the importance of the records that they're inheriting from the British administration and the importance of keeping these for the National Army's sake, but also for future historians. And that document, I think, is pretty much the founding document, if you like, of military archives. And the ripple effect of that particular decision or that particular letter is that we're now sitting in a very modern building with an enormous store of historical records behind me in a purpose-built storage facility. And at any stage over the last 100 years, if you dipped into the history of military archives, you might have had a slightly different perspective or a slightly different story. Were there ever periods where it was almost closed and where a lot of these archives, old records would have been dispersed, destroyed, you know, that kind of thing. And it's So that kind of rate of change and those kind of decisions that are made, if you land in on the Defence Forces as we are now, looking at it and writing a centenary history, Mm. this changes, the fact that we're writing now changes the narrative to a certain degree. If we landed in 10 years' time, the narrative again would be slightly different. I mean, if we looked at the history of the Defence Forces, if we were writing this in 1945, you'd have a very interesting picture of the of the Defence Forces' future because there's this memorandum put together in 1944, memorandum on the Defence Forces. There's a real realisation of the importance of the Defence Forces to... Um, I suppose, is safeguarding the, the state. And there's, yeah. promise of, there's a promise of investment. There's a promise of proper structures being put in place. So, you know, but if, if I were writing it at that moment, that would absolutely change and affect the kind of history that I'm going to write. So the fact that we're writing now in 2021 is changing the, fa- the history that I'm writing. The fact we're writing as part of this centenary process will change it in ways that might not be completely apparent to me or to the writing process or to, or to the research process. But that's, you know, again, that's part of the whole thing of writing centenary histories is that the, the distant past is relatively easy to to cover. The last 10, 15, 20 years when I'm writing that, it's a different perspective altogether because I'm writing it in this particular moment. That, that's going to change the way I'm viewing it and the way that you're viewing it and the way everybody else is viewing the history of the Defence Forces. And that to me is fascinating. And to be part of that process is whether unconsciously or not, or not, or consciously realizing that is is part of what makes writing these kind of institutional histories so so interesting. It's just uh, maybe on a slight tangent to what you said there. It's, it was interesting what you were saying about how different attitudes to to records and things kind of change over time as well. And I've always been very like the whole field of archives and archivistics. There's very much an understanding that it's a, an interdisciplinary and a multidisciplinary process. But we're still at a kind of a, a, a place where the other discipline that it's primarily involved with is the historian. Yeah. Um, but for me, I've always been been very very open about the fact that my undergraduate qualification is in sociology and politics and philosophy, and I think those things are are really significant. Probably even more so than history in and of itself in terms of understanding and dealing with archives, um, sociology and politics for for obvious reasons because mm. political and social reasons affect both the meanings we have and what we do with the records but in terms of philosophy as well just even kind of ontological ideas that a society have affects how we, we treat archives yeah. are you just kind of again because it's kind of an area I'm interested in are you familiar with the kind of idea of, of ontology no no this was this idea just that was a crash course Jack Derrida came up with this idea yeah. Of, of about this is, fast, this is fascinating yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's not often I get a, a very I get very uh, anytime I'm asked to talk of things it's about history but it's not my yeah, primary yeah. thing that I'm interested in I, I like it but it's you know <laughs> yeah no don't, I don't shouldn't say that <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely but, yeah. Um, that's just a real crash course he was talking specifically about kind of the spectre of, 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 of Marx but it's very much broadly this I suppose ontological idea that we never fully experience 
the pa- the present as it is. You always have kind of specters from the past and, and of what could be kind of possible futures that kind of interact with it. Yeah. And there was a guy called, what was his name? Mark Fisher. And he kind of advanced this idea and then really kind of specified it into kind of cultural theory. And it's really about this, this idea we have now of kind of how, how lost futures are still present. They might not exist, but they, they're still always there in kind of our yeah. thought process. And like, I suppose in a modern cultural sense, you have things like, if you're into like, if you, if you look up Scarfolk online or um, what's your thing, like ghost box records, that kind of thing. It's a whole kind of artistic scene now. But one thing that always struck me as really hauntological is this idea of the Republic so when, when they went out in 1916, there's this concept of the Republic. And it's still there. I think always, maybe you, you can reflect on this, but when we study history or we study the period, this thing that this, this future that never came to be, because as we know, the, 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 the future that was envisaged, the Republic of, of envisaged in 1916 for various reasons didn't come to be. Now, even in the present now, it's, it's not, it, sorry, it's not a, a possible future that could have come to be now because we're in a completely different political and, and social sphere. But always at the back of our minds, there's this idea that we started off with this idea of the Republic and things went a little bit differently. So it doesn't exist, but it still yeah. exists like in a, I suppose, like a spectre. Well, exactly. Know? And it exists in people's, in mm. it, and it existed in, in people's imaginations or in people's beliefs. And, uh, you know, of course, that's, it ties right into the civil war and it ties into the split over the treaty and then later on it ties into the the army mutiny in 1924 where, where sort of the stated aim is that the the national army or that the country is strained from the ideals of michael collins so you absolutely and, and that's it's a fascinating concept and it's, it's a fascinating idea that you have people who later became tishig uh the, you know Ministers for Defence, etc., trying actively to promote this alternative future that you're talking about um, in the background uh, during the 1920s, and then eventually accepting and 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 rejoining the doll and and you know changing history in their own way. So that, you know, I think that that that's a, it's a fascinating concept, and you know, I think that's something that I'm going to disappear down a rabbit hole now to, uh, of research chasing this down later on this evening. When um, you know what you've just talked about, um, but from just to go back to what you're talking in terms of the importance of, say, politics, of, of sociology, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the historical profession in Ireland is actually, it's, it's, quite, it's quite unusual, I think, in a, in a European or maybe even in a, in, in a, in a global perspective in, in its prominence, uh, you know, in, in the fact that so many of our sort of public figures, and certainly if you look in, in the national media, newspapers, uh, talk shows, etc., you, you'll, you'll hear and see and read historians more than you would, I think, in most other most of the nations. I'm not complaining about that. It's great. It's great for for my profession, but it, you know it does beg that question about um, alternative perspectives and and you know interdisciplinarity and that the importance of that in terms of shaping the kind of narrative that is mm. that is put forward and, and portrayed. And something that I'm acutely conscious of in in my work is trying to draw in as best I can um, alternative perspectives mm. and alternative disciplines and their interpretations of of what has happened in the past and you know you're the, the the new podcast i think it's archive nation and that's being run by you know by by your colleague cecile and i think neve uh, neve nicara that's i listened to the first episode of that last week and it's just it's a fascinating it's fascinating to get the insight of an archivist into the process not just of creating history but creating knowledge the whole idea of the dissemination of knowledge and the the, the idea that what it's you know it's it should never just be filtered through the lens no. of history and that you know that's part of why working with 
working with you and working with everybody here is really interesting for me because with Leopardstown and with DCU, I was working with largely unsorted, largely uncatalogued collections. So I was digging through the material by myself. And that is fine because it's actually really interesting. It's fascinating because you're looking at stuff that people haven't looked at for either a very, very long time or has never really been sorted and put together into a narrative uh, account of the institution before. But it is kind of isolating as well. And you have to try to work outside and talk about the work as much as you can with people because you do need to get that alternative perspective on what it is that you're doing. And when you do a commissioned work like this and when you you move and, and work on institutional histories, you know, that's something that's a challenge for me is to make sure that I don't get isolated in terms of going down rabbit holes of research and pursuing things from my own sort of relatively narrow discipline and making sure yeah. that I'm drawing on as much knowledge as possible and, and using that then to kind of feed into ideas and, and create um, different ways for me to actually explore, in this case, the history of the Defence Forces. Yeah, it, it, it's, I suppose it's something that I, I, I just find, I found it curious and interesting and, and maybe I'd be slightly critical of it or I suppose in the decade of centenaries that it has been very much, I, I think, historically focused and maybe it sounds like a bit of a contradiction to say that it could be otherwise but I mean I think if we keep sticking with certain with futures that didn't come to pass I mean there's a danger that you you can't create any new cultural forms or cultural mm. modes from that either mm. so I would like to have seen I suppose the decade of centenaries and there's still time very much future focused as well and in terms of being interdisciplinary something I've always found interesting as well is that I mean, we look back historically and we're looking at the kind of incidents, especially traumatic incidents. And I know the sociologist, uh, Professor Linda Connolly, is doing great work out in Minute and this That's at right, the moment. Yeah. She gave a talk to, to Mocknav, I think, wasn't it? That? That's um, right, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, we're dealing with, we're, we're talking about dealing with and addressing the past. We're doing it with historians. But I mean, if I was dealing with a traumatic past, I wouldn't be going to a historian. No offense, <laughs> I'd be going yeah. to a psychologist or yeah. to, you know, and that's... I think there, there could be a, there was a lot potential for a lot broader yeah. interdisciplinary scope. Now, I, I, I know there's been a lot of, um, I suppose, report, support for artistic um, interpretations of the past as well. And I think that's a really good way of doing it because I suppose the, the likes of art therapy as well is, is well recognized as well. But um, yeah, I just think maybe the, the decade missed the trick. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. I, I, and, and what you're mentioning there about, and I think that's something that's really only happened in the last couple of years. Maybe there's been a, a longer that I haven't been aware of, but that idea of having artists in residence in, yeah. in different cultural institutions, um, that idea of expressing our history through art, absolutely. I mean, that's it's a, the more of that we do, the better, you know? And, and like you said, to create those kind of conversations between historians, between sociologists, between archaeologists, between artists, you know, everybody who works in the study of the past in some way or has an interest in studying the past or expressing that, the more we do that, I think the better. I think so, yeah. The past is a foreign country. That's it. <laughs> well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm hoping to try and make it less foreign. That's the, no. that's the goal. But, um, no, that, that, interesting to get your, your views on that and just to kind of go off the historical uh, yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's nice to talk about yeah. the um. Well, it's nice to talk about the yeah. process as, as much, you know, because yeah. it, it, when, like I said, when you when you do these kind of projects, you, you get into you get introduced to new people, new ideas, new sources, and that's incredibly liberating, and it's incredibly um, you know, it, it it makes it very fertile when you're trying to work on this kind of research and these kind of projects because you just get reinvigorated 
on a very regular basis. And the fact that, you know, I work with different organizations every couple of years, like I said, it just makes my process that much more interesting. And it's, it's nice to be able to get alternative perspectives on, on the kind of work that I do and, and working, like I said, with, with people like you and everybody, all the archivists here is just, it creates that kind of, I suppose, that dynamic that, that changes how a project is put together as well, you know, and, and that has its own impact on, on what mm. the end product will be. Well, tell me a bit then about um, something we mentioned already, periodization. We have uh, J.P. Duggan's book, um, I think was the, the last and prob- probably the only full, uh, as it was at the time, history of the Defence Forces. Mm. And very often when we look at the history of the Defence Forces, it's broken down in a very, it's, it's so you have, I suppose, the foundation of the volunteers, you have civil war, um, the, usual, the emergency period, UN service overseas, kind of, it's broken down that way. Are you going to follow that model? Or are you going to kind of weave in between it or a bit of both? It's fu- it's actually funny that you should ask that because I mean it's it it's still in flux the structure of the book um, and it's still you know the original idea was that yes I would go down a relatively straightforward chronological approach and I still think that that's probably the easiest way to do things up to in and around sort of the emergency the end of the emergency after that things get a little bit more interesting and 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 maybe dynamic in that. You do have the beginnings of UN peacekeeping that hasn't that hasn't stopped. So it's hard to write a sort of strictly chronological narrative. If you pick up peacekeeping in 1958, um, you have to keep going up to the present day in in that chapter. Let's say so. Automatically, then there's going to be sort of be that overlap there, and that's not a problem at all. It just makes things that much more um, fluid when I'm writing and when I'm putting together the project. And that's why, you know, I'd never like to sort of tie myself down by by putting in a very, very strict structure at the beginning because you never know where your research is going to take you. And like I said, it is obviously relatively easy to say that I'm going to look at the Civil War, I'm going to look at what follows the Civil War. And that's, you know, to, uh, somebody who's coming to this uh, relatively fresh, the, the professionalization drive that happens in the 1920s is fascinating you know, to me, you know, to see this kind of this attempt to create a professional standing army of, of sorts and then the 1930s in its own way and like the emergencies are there I think they're relatively easy to categorize and put together and and it, it helps the reader as much as anything else and it helps the research it helps me because it gives me that kind of structure but after that then like I said it gets really interesting and you have the eighth of the civil power that's a constant it's a constant um part of the army's the defense forces role so whether it's you know in the immediate aftermath of the civil war that kind of quasi-police role that the Defence Force that the Army plays up to, you know, um, border patrols in the 19, from the 19, late 1960s and 1970s onwards. Um, so again, how do I put that together? I mean, I, I mentioned the eighth of the civil power in the early chapters, but then there might be a full chapter on it from, let's say, it's the 60s onwards. You know, I, like I said, I don't like to tie it down too much and, and, and create too much of a straitjacket for myself that I have to write myself out of later on. And, you know, it, it doesn't read as, as fluidly as, as you might like then for the for the end um, for the end reader. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting question and I, I never I can't answer it, I suppose, specifically now because I, I don't know yet how it would be. And I will t- I tend to write and research at the same time, you know, write up the notes as I'm going along and maybe use them as a skeleton for a chapter. But in in November, I might well be te- tearing that apart and putting it back together in a different way because it will make more sense then having put together, I suppose, the bigger picture uh, and, and drawing it through. So that, you know, that to me makes the, again, it makes the process, makes the, pro- um, the whole progress of the, of the project, 
unknowable, but that's kind of in its own way, it's, it's, it's interesting and it means that I'm always alert to the possibility that the narrative might just go off in a slightly different direction to the one that I thought that it would when I would have put together an initial outline. It sounds like the last chapter of the book is going to be not a challenge, but it'll be interesting. It it will, and and funnily enough, now that the last well the last chapter because you're because you're dealing with very 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 recent events, and that, and that's the brief is is to go right up to as late as possible. So there's a few there's a few challenges there. Obviously, the records are less accessible to me because they're still they're active files or they're. Um, there's sensitivities in that that mean that I can't get access to them. That's part of the course. So that that's to be under to be sort of expected, um, and it's also it's 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 much more difficult to get perspective. So it's much more difficult to get that kind of historical perspective on things that are happening, let's say in the last even the last decade. And there's been a lot of really interesting changes in the defense forces in the last decade. Um, so yeah, the last chapter is going to be. I think it's going to be the most challenging for sure. Now, having said that, I do have in mind that the actual last chapter is likely to be, and this is, again, subject to change, but that what I'm hoping to do is maybe have a kind of a, a, a witness witness history, for want of a better term yet, chapter where I'm, because the Defence Forces and the military, military archives have such an incredible collection of first-person testimony from the Bureau of Military History, the Military Service Pensions Collection, and I haven't even sat down and, and spoken with Cecile and the team over there yet about about that uh, that collection. And then there's the oral history program that's been running um, for the last few years. There's so much richness in those collections in terms of that first-person perspective. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier on, when you write an institutional history, you tend to write from the top down because the records that are available to you tend to be administrative yeah. uh, decision-making records. And that always, always occludes the the voice of the people who have been serving maybe at, at lower levels within the organization. And what I've always tried to do in writing an institutional history is to bring those voices out. And with military archives and with the defense forces that's possible on a way that i've never actually been able to to do before so i would like to have the last chapter be you know short excerpts from um from those witness statements from the 19 you know i think they were gathered in the 1940s 50s but of service in the 20s and, and even earlier and then obviously the oral history program that brings people right up to date um i think i saw my uh, michael whelan out in 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 Baldonnel is is recording does an awful lot of these recordings. I think he's just done a recording with one of the the very first um, female officers to serve in the defense forces. Yeah, Michael is doing serious work collecting yeah. oral histories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and again, something that I've been in touch with, I haven't actually had a proper conversation with yet. But just to you know, that there's such a richness and there's such mm. an incredible resource there that you know I need to tap into that. And I think that it would enrich the project and certainly make the book that bit yeah. more. Um, impactful if I have those voices and again you know there's so many of them that how do you how do you pick them how do you fit them in I suppose that's the benefit though of the fact that you're I suppose embedded with us you know so you're not coming really from the outside so you are embedded so you know the people to talk to and the people you can ask yeah as well it's also just to I suppose a caveat to that is that was why we were so interested and set on having an external author write this so it doesn't come across as a propaganda piece from inside Mm. and also despite the fact you're embedded you have your own academic and professional um, achievements to stand on. So, you, I mean, yeah, you are your own. Yeah, and, and we, mentioned it, we mentioned it earlier on, like it, it's it's an important, it's a very important part of it for me is to have that kind of academic freedom and that kind of um, integrity to the project so that, you know, in terms of the, the structure, the contents, the topics that are dealt with, 
Um, it's something that we actually discussed very, very early on. Very early on is that there's nothing that's off limits, which is, you know, again, it's integral to me actually coming on board and taking on the project like this. Is that nothing is off limits, and that I get to write what I see and what I find. Civil and war has to be. So the civil war especially I mean, has to be. Some of the some of the more you mentioned Linda Connolly, and and she's um, I know a lot of her work and a lot of other people's work on the violence towards women during the civil war. Um, that's. That has to be, you know, something that I talk about and something that I bring in. Bally Seedy as well, that's something that I have to bring into the conversation, into the history of the Defence Forces. So, yeah, so having that kind of, like you said, um, academic integrity and academic freedom, but also because of the fact that I'm working here in military archives and I have, you know, I have access and and, and conversations with with you and with with Noel and Lisa and, and Linda and Hugh and everybody who's working here who can tell me, who can give me the benefit of their expertise and their experience that it's it's a it, it's really gonna it really enriches the project because i'm getting that kind of knowledge passed on to me you know and if i have a question it's, it's been it's been fantastic to work in this on the project because anytime i have a question i can just you know quick answer straight away and everybody's been so helpful and like you know i've never had that before because any of the other places that i've worked so far the the archives have been private and like I said, unsorted, uncatalogued, and difficult to use in that respect. You know, and there's like I said, there's a huge enjoyment in terms of working with with material like that. But also, um, working with the material here is it's fantastic to have that knowledge. Now I need it. I mean, there's so much <laughs> material here. You know, um, I remember when you were here first that we did a tour of the repository to yeah. show you how much we had. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I nearly, I nearly, <laughs> I nearly quit in the spot. There was so, <laughs> there was so much. But I mean, I was just crunching some of the numbers on it before we before we sat down and. If you just take the Department of Defense material that's been sent down here, so the A series, the two series, and the three series files, so there's twenty three thousand files there, covering you know nineteen twenties up to nineteen seventies or so, I think. So I mean, I suppose that just gives you scale, and that's just one small, really, uh, part of what is held in military archives. So that gives you, uh, might give the listeners a sense of the the scale of the material that is actually available to me. So having you know having the knowledge to draw upon means that i can focus in sometimes um on more important elements of the collection or ones that people will be able to say to me yeah i know you're going to get some really interesting stuff here here and here and it means that it makes a project like this like i said viable because if it was just me working through military archives by myself i'd be there for 40 years you know and you might never get the history (laughs) (laughs) well we need to have it open 2022 so exactly yeah Come here, um, Owen, it's been a fascinating conversation. It's been great to be able to sit down with you and, and give the audience some idea of, of what's going on with this project and what to expect. And for anyone listening, the Defence Forces Centenary Publication, that's a working title. We haven't decided on a... We'll get something snazzier. We'll get something snazzier yeah. for it, yeah. But um, it will be published by Four Courts Press and it will be in bookstores for Q4, Q4 of 2022, so an ideal Christmas present. Just so you know as well, all royalties will be donated to charity to be announced. So royalties will go to charity and the book will retail for 30 euros. So for a solid hardback edition, I mean, that's a very, I think, reasonable price. So a lovely Christmas gift for people. Exactly, exactly. Stocking filler. Okay, Owen, thanks for joining me today. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Dan. Thanks Thanks very much. And this has been the Military Archives podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take care.